In monastery culture, um, there's a, a bunch of chanting that we learn and, and, and recite regularly. And uh, some of it is like liturgic, and some of it is reflective. And some of it is the discourses that the Buddha gave. So if we, if we think about what happened, you know, over 2,500 years ago, they didn't have Wi-Fi spots and candles and smartphones. They didn't even have books. And so the way they got to hear what the teacher was saying was they'd, they'd bunch up with other people who'd heard what he just said, and they'd repeat what it was that he'd said. And so the chanting was the way in which the teaching was conveyed. And that was the case for a good 500 years before it was first written down. And then after things got written down, there was still a whole tradition of chanting and reciting the words of the teacher in this way. And so part of the monastery culture of living in community was to just go through different chanting. Some of it was liturgic and some of it was more reflective and some of it was some of the suttas. So I brought one of the suttas that was one of the common suttas that we would use in the in the monastery in the morning or the evening chanting. It's called the Dasadama Sutta or the Ten Essential Things to Reflect On. And so I can I can go through what they are and the context is and then what I'd like you to listen for is um, which ones resonate, and then I'll speak further on those. Okay? So usually with the suttas, there was always a place. So it wasn't like these things happened in outer space. They happened in location. So there's a, a location of where, where these, these discourses took place and who were the people who were listening. And so... The Blessed One was living near Sawati, which you can visit today, at Jetavana, which you can also visit today, at the monastery of Anattapindika. And the monks were asking about a question. And then the, the Buddha said, then these ten essential dhammas are to be reflected on again and again by one who has gone forth. And then he lists them. I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. Let me go back. Somebody who's gone forth is somebody who has taken um, aspiration or commitments towards renunciation. And so a gone forth one is usually somebody in the tradition that I come from who's got ten precepts or more, and it means that they don't handle money and they live on alms food. You know, traditionally in, a, in, the, in an alms mendicant society, which the culture in India was for 400 years before the Buddha arrived with his monastic community, the lay community knew it was their responsibility to look after the alms mendicants. So they would live with their robes and their begging bowl, and they would live in the forest or in very simple huts, and they would just go for alms in villages. 
So one who has gone forth is somebody who has committed a life of renunciation. But anybody who is interested in waking up is going against the stream of what our contemporary society is valuing. So this is not just for monastics, okay? Even though this was a reflection that the monastics were encouraged to think about and consider very deeply. So I'm going to go through the list and just just get a sense of which of these things resonate for you that would be useful to have more um, conversation around. So the first one, I'm no longer living according to worldly aims and values. Second one, my very life depends on the gifts of others. The third one, I should strive to abandon my former habits. Fourth one, does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? Fifth one, could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? Sixth one, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. The seventh one, I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide, supported by my kama. Whatever kama I will do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. The eighth one, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? The ninth one, do I delight in solitude or not? And the tenth one, has my practice borne fruit with freedom or insight so that at the end of my life I need not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions? So is any of this relevant? I'm curious to hear more about two and three and nine. Any other requests? All right, so we have two, three, and four. My very life depends on the gifts of others. I should strive to abandon my former habits, and does regret over my conduct arise in my mind. You know, in some in some way, actually, for every one of us, our life depends on the gifts of others. None of us are able to live independently from the efforts that everybody else makes. In our society, we have the, a collective delusion that once you earn money, then you are independent. And therefore, because you're independent, you have the consumer power to do whatever you want with that money, which you know, certainly has a, a validity to it. But the reality is, is is that the the efforts of our work that generate money are dependent and the, the, the life force that we have is dependent on a phenomenal number of conditions coming together. And, you know, we're dependent on the earth and we're dependent on the air and we're dependent on the sun and we're dependent on uh, a certain quality of, of um, lack of poison. And if we are don't have any of those conditions, then we feel it a lot. Our food is affected. Our health is affected. 
So each of us has an interconnected web that we are part of, independent of how financially resourced or not we are. For a person in my situation that has made a commitment not to handle money, you know, it tweaks the ante a, a particular way in this culture where everything is geared around having money and being able to be independent in terms of obtaining one's needs. And so, you know, for myself, it's a daily reflection. You know, I don't even have to go through the chant that the food that I eat is food that's been given to me. And if there isn't food that's given to me, I don't eat. And so it's like really simple. Every time I sit down with food, there's an absolute tangible sense of this food comes because other people have brought it or cooked it or prepared it or offered it or made it available to me. And so I, I have, um, like every day, you know, virtually at every meal, there's this that comes through my mind. And so there's a, a gratitude, you know, just the, an unbelievable gratitude of being able to eat. You know, simple, very simple. Having food and having enough food is a, a, a tremendous source of gratitude. Yeah. So in, in, in the lifestyle of an alms mendicant, of a gone forth one, it's not just food. I didn't buy any of these clothes. They were all given to me. And the hat was given to me, and the tape recorder was given to me, and the bowl bag was made for me, and the jacket was given to me. There isn't any way that I have of obtaining anything other than through other people's gifts. And so every component of the life that I have in terms of the requisites that I have are the result of others. And so the normal kind of things that we do in our day or in terms of, you know, food and shelter and clothing and medicine come as the result of other people giving. So for me, there's a, a kind of a, a, a wellspring of gratitude that I live with because the generosity of others is a direct link to why I am alive. So, you know, in science, they talk about um, you know, the cells of the body regenerate every seven years, you know. And, you know, we come from the, the semen of our fathers and the ovum of our mothers, and then our cells regenerate every seven years. Well, I feel like I came from my alms bowl, because I've been a nun for over 20 years now, so I've had three generations of of cells that have come nourished by the food that's been given in my alms bowl, you know? And so there's a different kind of, I don't know what, it's not, it's just, all of us are connected to each other, but there's ways in which we forget that, whereas ways in which when we sit down and eat, we're not actually connecting to the various different conditions that have given rise to this food and how this is actually part of who we are. And when I think that way, I don't feel lonely, you know. So when I think about all of the different people that grew the food and their families and what it was like for them and that harvested the food and brought the food to the market and then the people who bought the food and brought the food to me, there's a whole web in a, in a, in a meal, 
of interconnectedness. And so I, I, when I think like that, you know, I feel there's a whole, I'm part of a larger sphere. I don't feel lonely. And a lot of time I eat alone. Are there any questions that come up about that? Um, I think, you know, for people who aren't um, um, we're taught that you're supposed to be strong and independent and self-sufficient and competent and vulnerable. And so um, to ask or receive is so um, frightening. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about feeling um, connected and, and gratitude and like you're not alone, but um, I think for most people that, that fear is just causes them to feel the opposite, terrified of rejection and things like that. So I just um, wonder how a person can shift into the state that you're in where you feel that connection instead of the fear of rejection. It's a beautiful question. I mean, I came from the same conditioning that being independent is absolutely the, you know, the, the culmination of what we all are trying to do. I was born in this culture. You know, I come from a Jewish family. It's like, this is big. <laughs> it's not small. This is really big. <laughs> and I remember the first time I was in Anagarica, the very first day I became an Anagarica, and I took an alms bowl, which was not a proper alms bowl, but a, like a, a steel bowl that we had in the kitchen. So that's what the, the Anagaricas used. And I went down the alms round, so as an Anagarica, and I just cried because it was totally overwhelming to be the recipient of that kind of generosity. I had no capacity for it. And I, I, I have to be honest to say that it's not an instantaneous transformation that takes place. It's something that happens gradually over years. And it's uncomfortable because it completely cuts across our cultural valuing, which is that independence around your basic needs is absolutely what we are striving for. And what the monastic culture is, is totally the opposite. The Buddha designed it specifically so that the monastics were completely dependent on the lay people. They had no mechanism of being able to obtain their own requisites without the support of the lay people. But ironically, when one works with this in a healthy context and is open to the shadow that can emerge through it, which is, is that you become you know, like an infant and dependent or codependent, is, is that one, one uses the, the edge of the vulnerability that this exposes in order to strengthen the qualities of heart and courage and faith and conviction about where a kind of happiness and peace one can rely on that is not dependent on anything. So it's ironic that as a monastic, the possibility of realizing a kind of peace and happiness that is completely independent is possible. But the way to work with that excruciating vulnerability is to meet it and to allow it.
and to have a context that begins to see that actually touching that and moving through that is valuable rather than defending against it and resisting it. You know? So one of the things that I've seen now having been out on the road a bit is, is, is that even within the Buddhist community there are not very many monks and nuns who have had the training of living like that as alms mendicants totally dependent on the support of others. And so even within a Buddhist monastic culture, there's a range of different people's experiences with that. And I remember there were some of our community that were in India. This is the community that I had been a part of for 20 years. And the Dalai Lama was there and was incredulous that we were living on alms. You know, it was absolutely unfathomable to him that such a thing could actually be possible. This is the Dalai Lama, you know. So, you know, there's different understandings about, you know, all of this stuff. But and, and, and in our cultural context, I'm finding that it's challenging because there's so few people who uh, have a either the understanding, the appreciation, or the interest to, to cultivate the interdependent relationship that comes when you are involved with supporting this. So I've been challenged. But that vulnerable place is when there's an appreciation of, the, of what can happen when one touches that and meets that and walks into that, as opposed to walking away from it there are amazing things that can open up in terms of a very different understanding of what it is to be in relationship. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, it's a lot easier to give than it is to receive. You know, giving feels normal. Receiving feels wrong. But that's, that's skilly wampus. That's not right. You know, we've got to have both. The next one that there was interest in is I should strive to abandon my former habits. Bit of meat in this one. So our world has a lot of um, interest in promoting delusion. And we as individuals have in many cases bit the hook, hook, line, and seeker, you know, and have behavior patterns and values and ways of relating to things that are not about waking up or releasing suffering, but about oftentimes placating an idea about who we think we are, about doing what everybody else is doing, about escaping something that's uncomfortable, about diving headfirst into something that's pleasurable, and not seeing that um, there might be options to these that actually have more peace and freedom in them. So, you know, each of us will have our top ten habits and if we went around the room and shared what our top ten habits were, there would probably be some overlap and quite a lot of individual differences in the way we 
experience life and what we do and the kind of habit energies that we have. You know, some people tend towards anger, other people tend towards greed, some people tend towards spacing out and have different mechanisms around these different habit energies. Yeah. So the kind of basic view is, is that if we're moving towards anger or greed or spacing out, that's not conducive for waking up. And so to get some perspective on how to be with these different... I was just talking on the telephone today with a dear friend, somebody I've known for quite a while, and you know, she was saying that it's just been quite astonishing for her to recognize the level of wounding that she had had as a child and the impact that it has had in her whole life and how so much of her patterns that she's dealing with and has dealt with in her entire adult life were formed by the stuff that happened to her as a child. And so this isn't even so much um, patterns of greed or hatred or aversion, but the way we form our identity about who we are and what's happening to us in the world, you know, and how this fixes or gets locked in. And we tend to view the world through this colored lens and receive things as if that's the truth. And so to release this habit or to release this pattern or to release the the tendencies associated with it, you know, for her she's been working on it for a long time and diligently and it's slow to shift because stuff that goes deep takes a while. And yet the willingness to try comes because if you are not actively engaging and looking at this stuff, then the suffering perpetuates by itself. It's like if you don't dismantle the cycle of suffering, it will continue to spin. And so when there's a commitment to stop suffering, there's a willingness to open to the very things that most of us don't want to look at. And I certainly have my own stories about that where, you know, there have been things that I've gone through that were really hard and I wouldn't have gone through it unless I felt absolutely categorically I had no other choice because it was not, it was so uncomfortable and so unpleasant and so destabilizing. There is no way I would have volunteered for that program, you know. It was like I was trapped or cornered or I couldn't find any way to do it different. It was absolutely in my face and there was no way to go, nowhere to go. You know, so I've seen myself the resistances that I've had to do some of the things and enter into and touch some of the kind of habit patterns because they're connected to things where we're so vulnerable. There's a lot there. And it takes developing resource. So... It's a good idea to change one's habits, but the reality is is that one needs a lot of conditions to support doing that. You know, we don't just dive into a crevasse. You know, you need to have safety harnesses, you need to have ground, you need to have friendship, you need to have a sense of 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 um, community. You need to have some skill. You need to know forward and reverse and slow down. 
You need to have abilities to navigate internal territory so that when you're touching stuff like that, it's, it's, it's at a measure that isn't overwhelming. And then begin to slowly find other ways of navigating this stuff. You know, so water will run down the smoothest pathway and habits will go down the deepest rut. And so if we're wanting to change our groove, we need to find a way to dig something that's a little bit deeper than the rut that we already have. And you can be incredibly creative and resourceful in doing that. You know, there was one monk who walked into his room and saw his dad hanging by a rope. So his father had committed suicide and he was the one who found him. I mean, you can just imagine, you know, what kind of a shock and a trauma that would have been. And for a very long time, you know, every time he thought about his dad, his whole system kind of went into a trauma, into a shock. And then he, he had this idea that, you know, what he was going to do was random acts of kindness. He was going to deliberately think of things to do for people who were in the community that were kind. You know, take people's socks off the line or bring them a hot cup of tea when they would come home from teaching or put away the bowl that they had drying. Or You know, there's a million things that people can have happen to them. So he would plot deliberate acts of kindness and see if he could somehow arrange to be around when the person worked out that somebody had deliberately done something kind for him and it was, you know, so that he could catch the emotional expression on their face. And when he saw that, you know, the, the smile or the relief or the joy or the, the pleasure of knowing that somebody had deliberately gone out of their way to do something kind, he'd say, that's for you, Dad. This is for you. So he changed his association with his father from the trauma of seeing him hanging by his neck to the joy of watching people discover a kindness that he had done for them. Now, this person wasn't finished having done all of that. But you can see that we can work with the kind of stuff that we've got in ways that are incredibly creative and resourceful, you know. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, I know Steve is fabulous at community development. And part of the reason why the Front Range Against the Stream communities are as healthy as they are is because he knows how to support people and encourage and show up and be there. And he knows the people and their, what's going on in their lives and all the rest of that. And having somebody like Steve around is really invaluable because he begins to create a fabric of safety where other people can then feel like they can show up as who they are and begin to let some of the defenses down. And when you start letting defenses down, then you're in a position to be able to see each other and touch each other and support each other in a way that goes beneath the skin. And with some of this stuff, with habits, you need to get underneath the skin. So community is a really powerful way of having a wholesome effect on habits.
where you make clear intention about how you want to spend your time together and you know how you want to relate to each other. Now one of the things that I love to see or one of the things that I would say would be uh, a sign of, of depth is if a community has enough trust with each other that they can start giving each other feedback. And it's not, you know, you're an idiot, but actually stop trashing yourself in front of me. I don't accept that, you know. It's to mirror each other's goodness first and to really call each other out when you see a person, you know, harming themselves. You know, that's a sign of depth. When that's there and there's more safety, then there is the possibility that the community can hold the space where we can start looking at some of the stuff that's even more challenging to look at. Not in any kind of way of criticism, but as a, with an enormous amount of tenderness and care, just as a way of, as a support of saying, you know, this is also there. So one thing that can happen in a, in a community of people who have a lot of association with each other and are committed to creating a safety that's like that, is, is that's what can happen. And, and then what it can feel like is it doesn't feel like we're walking around pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps all the time. It feels like we are in a field that is holding and it isn't only us and our own individual choices that is making this all happen. Our comments, other things people would like to share about your own experience with changing habits, working with habits? Sometimes I just do the opposite, you know, like whatever I was doing before, do the opposite. I know it sounds extreme, but um, that's the best way to describe it. Can you give an example? Well, like, for example, um, if I didn't trust someone, then, and I would see that that was actually causing suffering, then um, I would just do the opposite. And I would just totally trust them. And um, Was that for real? Yeah. So how could you go from not trusting somebody to totally trusting them? Well, because probably because there wasn't zero to 100, you know. It probably started out at 75 or something. So it wasn't like I had to go that far, but enough that it made a difference. So that's the best example I can think of. So classically, you know, teachings are given that when there's aversion to meet it with metta, you know, kindness. And when there's a desire to meet it with equanimity or to look at the unbeautiful aspect of what one is desiring. And when there's the tendency to space out, to have the courage to show up, to just be present. One thing that uh, I've been thinking about and trying to work with is the, the idea of positive intent, even like in my own conflict, to try to change or address old habits, things that I like in myself. And I try to identify what the positive intent is whether it's an anger or worry or whatever it might be, that I, I know it's not productive, it's not, you know, it doesn't bring about, you know, a good outcome usually, but I, I recognize that there's a, what's behind it is a positive intent, as, as there is in others, the behavior of other people that I 
also don't like. Or it seems like it's destructive even. But they're doing this because they have, there's a positive intent somewhere there. And if I can identify that, it's very helpful in changing it. It may not be, the behavior may not be actually achieving that positive intent, but the intention is to do that. I think recognizing that just helps to bring down the angst around what's happening. And it helps with trust, of course, because it helps in recognizing, I don't know, the frailties of myself and other people. And, you know, bringing about changing or changing habits that aren't desirable. It makes any sense, but I find that useful. So the last one of these Dasadama reflections that was of interest to a few people was the one about regret. Does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? So in a, you know, as human beings, we're often doing and saying things that sometimes there's regret about. And so to really reflect about that and consider, well, what is it that I feel regretful about? What happened? You know, and why do I feel regret? And so in a formal monastic context, there's occasions where we regularly ask for forgiveness. So the normal evening chanting, there's a time for asking for forgiveness. And there's a way of asking for forgiveness ceremoniously several times a year. And there's a way of just asking for forgiveness, you know, as a way of clearing the slate. And I think, you know, this whole idea of recognizing that we make mistakes and bringing the quality of forgiveness to ourselves is important, you know, to recognize that. So regret, you know, for me, it's really important to differentiate the difference between regret and guilt or shame. You know, so guilt and toxic shame has this way of solidifying a bad sense of self, you know, that fundamentally we're rotten to the core. And this is just another expression of it. You know, this is just proof, you know. So guilt solidifies a bad sense of self. And regret seizes that there's some cause and effect relationship that has been unfortunate. That with this action, there's this result. And this result is not furthering. It's not peaceful. It's not an ending of suffering. It's contributing to more suffering. And that somehow through one's actions or one's speech or one's intention, one participated in something that was regretful. But there isn't a bad person. There's no bad person that gets shaped in regret. So coming from the culture that we have, the Judeo-Christian conditioning, you know, guilt is endemic. And so what we need to do is to sift out the regret and leave aside the guilt. You know, the only thing that guilt serves in a useful purpose is for developing extraordinarily vigilance not to believe it. You know, that's the only thing that it's useful for, is developing vigilance. It serves no purpose. But in it is a grain of regret that can be extracted out where you leave the bad sense of self aside. That I am bad. There's something wrong with me. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And this is just another proof positive that I'm, you know, 
just that is not helpful. It's not furthering. It's not true. It's not accurate. It's not correct. So we have these feelings, and these feelings arise because of conditions. And if we've done something that we feel badly about, then we just have to see that under these pressures, with these conditions, with these vulnerabilities, this is what I did. And there's some sense of a boundary that has been you know, blurred or transgressed or edged over, and it's causing confusion. And that needs to be rectified or clarified or made amends to or apologized. So there's, I think it's a useful to, you know, establish clarity about what your commitments are. You know, so on Saturday, uh, somebody who was on the Friday night group had made arrangements to come over and to take the precepts with me. Now, I'm not giving him the precepts. That's not what's happening. But because he's taking the precepts in front of somebody else who's also practicing, it helps to focus his own commitment that that's actually his intention what he wants to keep, you know. It's actually very skillful to take the precepts and to collectively or affirm or affirm in front of another person that this is your intention, not to harm, not to steal, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from incorrect speech, and to refrain from drugs and drink which cause confusion and carelessness. And so one develops a container or a boundary that is supportive for being able to decipher when one's getting close to these boundaries that need to be where there needs to be care. So it's helpful to reaffirm precepts. It's helpful to acknowledge transgressions of precepts. It's helpful to um, deliberately ask for forgiveness. And it's helpful to ask for forgiveness for oneself, to ask for and extend forgiveness to oneself. Because usually there isn't anybody who's hurt ourselves more than we have, you know. There are a few people in the world who's walked out on ourselves more than we have, let ourselves down more than we have, abandoned ourselves more than we have, neglected ourselves more than we have. Now we just are not showing up in the way that's needed in order to take care. So there's a kind of self-neglect that can happen. So when we ask for forgiveness or do any of these kinds of practices, it's not like we're making a, a, or extending forgiveness. It's not that there's a magic wand that condones the behavior as being acceptable. It's there's, a, there's an intention to let go of the pain that is associated with it. It's very different. And the intention to let go is very different from the actuality of letting go. So some things hurt Oh, my God, do they hurt. You know, betrayal really hurts, especially somebody that you really care about, you know, that you love deeply. To feel betrayed is so excruciatingly painful. But to hold on to it, it just makes it worse. So the gesture of offering forgiveness is the beginning to bring the conditions necessary in order to let go. There's no magic wand in it. You know, there's no voop-voop where it's just all disappeared and it's all finished and everything is hunky-dory. And you know, It's not like that. But it's a really healthy cultivation. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me because I find myself, you know, continually exploring 
you know, what in this tradition is useful and what is not, you know? What ways of holding things really supports the mind opening, the heart releasing, a deeper sense of understanding? And what stuff is just, you know, coming from another time and culture and era and absolutely doesn't make any sense anymore? It doesn't fit. So I have been asking the question. I continue to ask the question. I have a few more insights, but I don't have a whole lot of answers, you know. But I don't think it's helpful to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that, you know, because this stuff happened 2,500 years ago, it's just all useless. And that's my take on it. I'd be curious what yours is. How do you experience forgiveness? How do you experience forgiveness with yourself? When is it possible for you to forgive yourself? And when is it not? I guess for me, I guess sometimes I don't even know where, like, how to forgive myself. That makes sense. I don't even know how to. You don't know where to start? Yeah, where to even start. Because things just keep cropping up sometimes, and it's just like I don't even understand where to start with that. Well, I can just speak from my own experience. You know, coming out of England, you know, it was a huge change. And coming to this country is a phenomenal change. And I was navigating things that were out of my depth on many layers all at the same time. And, you know, obviously I was trying to do the best that I could. But there were times when I wasn't equal to the task. And so, you know, I wasn't as resourced as I could have been or might have been in another circumstance. And there was a sadness or a regret about some of the things that happened or unfolded in the way that they did or things that I said. And then I realized the magnitude of what it was that I was having to navigate. And through doing that, I was able to give myself a little bit more slack. So I could see this in a context. You know, it wasn't that I was, you know, a total write-off. It was that, you know, I had more on my plate than I was digesting. And even though I was trying to make intention effort with the various things, it was adding up to be more than I could navigate in a way that was skillful. And so the stuff that happened, nothing was gross, but there was stuff that was just regrettable, you know, and I felt bad. But then sometimes with the feeling bad, like there was one thing that happened that I felt bad about for probably the better part of a year. And then I had to look at what is my habit pattern around this, that it's taking me a year to feel resolved about this. And then it comes back to my own patterning, that I am supposed to be resourceful to be able to take care of everybody under all circumstances. You know, so it comes back to a core belief that I've had since I was a very little person, that that is something that I should be able to do for everybody under all circumstances. And then when I see that that's the belief that's behind or holding together this feeling of regret that's not shifting, then I have to check that against discernment to see, is that true? Is that really the case, that I am supposed to be available and resourceful to help everybody under all circumstances? And then when I look at it like that, it's obvious that that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that, okay? But that belief was fueling the regret. And because I wasn't conscious that that's what was fueling the regret, then the regret stayed. So for me, I have found psychology to be a really important adjunct to understand my own mechanisms of what's actually holding things in place and to be able to begin to identify what my um, belief systems are 
and where I have gotten attached to them. And for me also, it's taken time to learn how to do it. So there would be like this kind of blanket kind of bad feeling with no handles in it, just like bad. So I feel bad, but I don't have any clue about why or where or how or what or how do I deal with this or where do I go with that. Just blanket, no handles. It's like moving one of those large futon mattresses that don't have, a, that don't have handles on them. It's absolute pain. You can't grab them. <laughs> So then I work with it in terms of my body. Where do I feel it in my body? And, and, and how can I work with the subtle sensations of my body? And when I bring a subtle attention to the sensations in my body, what happens to this big blanket thing that's just kind of hanging out with no handles on it? Does it get clearer? Does it get more heavy? Does it get lighter? Does it move? Does it shift? And then sometimes for me, something will clarify out of that. And it's like, oh, that's what that is. And then with, you know, with my stuff now, there's some familiarity with it. You know, this is this one. You know, this is this little monster. You know, and so, you know, you can have names for your little monsters and count how often they arise during the day. And so you can change it from a, like a relationship of, you know, I don't like you, you're scary, get out of my space, to let's go play. You know, and so it changes things, and then the whole relationship with that shifts, and there's much more sense of fluidity and flow, and doesn't feel so heavy and so stuck. You know, but what I was saying on Friday night, which I've also had to navigate a lot, is is, is that sometimes what's happened is, is is that part of what I'm dealing with is is something that's actually very young. You know, so it's like there's a kind of consciousness of a very young child that's gotten triggered. And I can't figure it out because as a young child, you don't have the language or the skills or the vocabulary or the insight or the self-awareness to have a clue what's going on. It's just totally beyond you. So that what's needed is to, is to, is to move back and forth between the, the, the person who's wise and has discernment and the consciousness that's young and completely without the skills to label or know what this is and moving back and forth to be able to, to help with discernment into a consciousness that does not have the, the resources to, to name what is going on. And to know that that's right. Beyond, the, beyond you know, beneath a certain age, it's absolutely correct that you don't have a clue what's going on. You know? And you need other people around you to mirror that for you. And if that wasn't happening, it's very confusing for a very long time. And it's not your fault. But at some point, we have to pick up, it's not our fault, but now it's our responsibility. And so we have to develop the ability to bring a caring and a kindness and a responsiveness that's appropriate for whatever it is that we're having to feel. What other experiences do you have with forgiveness, forgiving yourself? Have you ever done any ceremony with it? What does that look like? Or what would that look like? What could that look like? Does that interest you? Does that seem terrifying? Ceremony has really helped me to release my inner drama queen in a healthy way. I like to cook and bake and visualize myself, giving kindness and love to myself, recognizing my habitual patterns through just taking moments to reflect and be mindful and 
watching what happens with my mind when I feel regret or see myself watching myself falling into patterns over and over again. And I visualize those being not dark, but golden light, full of love and lesson and release and recreate. And I like um, to do for others because it, it helps me feel a sense of need some other Teresa syndrome. <laughs> but sort of uh, putting the love that I have for myself into something that can nourish others, whether that's through delicious muffin or <laughs> a community activity of some sort that brings people together and inspire that same sense. And for me, that's been a very important part of transforming my mind and my habitual self-deprecation and hatred from maybe very surely, possibly, <laughs> my childhood, I think. Not necessarily coming from the background of addiction, but one of the abuse and trauma and holding myself like a, like a child, being kind to myself like, like I was a child. I like that trick, the, the imagining yourself as someone as a child. I think I read for some one of those books. He says he talks about that. Start being advocated. Shrink that person down to about two years old. It's a lot easier to forgive them. You can just do that for yourself. It's so easy to forgive yourself. But, uh, I was thinking about that. The thing you said about the deep down, really, um, to use a no good would be my term for that. You know, and I, like as an example, would be one of the last things my dad said to me. When Eric and I got married, we had this Buddhist ceremony up in the mountains, and we show up at the reception and it was totally not ready. Right? The caterers it up. <laughs> that belief is endemic you know I think that's more common that people have that belief than they don't you know that there's a basic sense that you know there's just skin over a cesspit and if you just get a little bit beneath it you've got this endless pool of you know and for my process of excavating this there's been two kind of ways that I've done with that one is to is to is to do things that help me uh, shift that, so that there's a feeling of of um, self-worth and self-respect and a sense of integrity. And um, with that is you know a sense of, of bringing a sense of kindness to myself. But because the the formation of this felt like it was so deep, that was small in comparison to the effect of what happens when you touch into moments of really getting a sense of the luminosity of the mind 
you know, the nature of the mind, the luminosity of the mind, the radiance of it. And when you, you touch the quality of loving, which is not the quality of loving that you you put into something, but the quality of loving that's present when everything else is falling away, you know. And for me, this journey of feeling like I was somehow basically bad is a big journey. But the times of insight of, of in meditation where the mind opens up to reality, I can see from that perspective that the, the, the other is, is highly conditioned stuff. It's not the truth. But when the other is running, when it's operating, it feels like it's gospel. It feels like it's absolute truth, that that's actually the way it is. And so for me, the, the commitment to keep digging the other trenches so that the water will f- flow a different way is changing the habits that are connected to that belief system. But it has to dovetail with practices that move out of just experiencing things on the conditioned and touching into something much deeper. And I, that, that ability to touch the deeper stuff, for me, has also dovetailed with opening up to the pain. You know, how did this stuff get here in the first place? It, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't that I actually had done anything that was that terrible. But what happens, or what happened for me, what happens is, is that when there's not the right holding, then the only way a, a, a young child makes sense of that is to internalize the, the lack as somehow having originated in oneself. But that's where the source of it is. And for me, it took a lot to hold attention to where this stuff was actually coming from and touch it, because there ain't no way you want to go there if left to your own devices. No way. But because I could see the suffering that resulted from it, and that that suffering was something that was spilling out into the various different parts of my life and wasn't being attenuated through some of the other practices and the ways that I was working with it. There was an interest to develop skills and resources to do that. But you have to have safety. You have to have safety and a feeling of welcome to to get anywhere near. There's just no way you can do this without that. And so, you know, for me, that came in different forms. But the form where I really was able to do quite a significant chunk of this was in the bush, in the, in the Australian bush, because I felt held and safe and welcome by the land in a way that I had never felt when I was living in the city. You know, never felt when I was living in the city. You know, so the teachings, the, the Buddhist teachings on suffering are a particular pathway which is helpful for a lot of people because suffering is something that many of us experience. It's a big gateway. A lot passed through that gateway. But with this particular kind of, of situation where there's this feeling of this fundamental sense of badness or wrongness, one needs to reflect that the mind's essential nature is luminous and empty and free and unconditioned. And anything that is conditioned is not what we actually are made out of. It's what conditions us, but it's not what we're made out of. It's not what's there when it all falls away. Everything else will fall away. But the luminous, expansive, radiant, unconditioned nature of the mind, it doesn't fall away. You can smear it with...
You can pour it with. You can paste it, wallpaper it with. It doesn't change it. It's still luminous. It's still unconditioned. It's still radiant. It's still all pervasive, and that's the nature. And so, in this situation, what's really helpful is to reflect on the mind as that way, rather than on, on reflect on suffering. That actually is who we are and what we are, and that's what's there when it all falls away, when everything falls away. And then to pick it up, pick up the pieces, pick up that rhinoceros by whichever which way you can grab hold of them. You know, by an ear, by a horn, by a tail, by a toe, by a flank. Just grab it and say, you know, I see you. This is where community is needed. Yeah, it's impossible to do this by yourself. Because you, the mind is deflecting attention where it needs to go. Absolutely will not contain or sustain or hold attention where it needs to go. It won't do it. And that's where community is essential. Shall we close? Shall we wrap up? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.